This week on Behind the Lens, the crop of candidates running for district attorney this year are all disavowing the most controversial policies of the current DA, but records show that some have used the practices in the past. A contentious Orleans Parish Civil District Court judicial election is heating up even more as the incumbent, Judge Chris Bruno, has now accused his opponent, Jennifer Medley, of violating campaign finance disclosure laws. And a five-year federal order on special education in New Orleans public schools could be coming to an end soon under new monitoring requirements. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel. Hi, Nick. Hi, Carolyn. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hello, Michael. Morning. Education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Carolyn. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hello, Charles. Morning. Okay, up first, Nick. District attorney candidates claim they've never signed controversial warrants to have crime victims arrested when they were judges but the, the lens identified cases that disprove the claim. First, tell us what material witness warrants are. So material witness warrants are issued by a judge um, at the request of either a prosecutor or a defense attorney that allows for the arrest of a witness who might have uh, material information regarding a, a crime. Um, so this allows the witness to be arrested and held in jail until they testify or released on certain conditions. This was a practice that that was, has, is used by prosecutors often to to get uncooperative witnesses to come to court. During the current district attorney's um, career, it was revealed that he was occasionally using these material witness warrants to actually arrest victims um, of crimes and to hold them in jail um, to testify against the the perpetrator who uh, was being charged. Um, and so after that was revealed, there was, there was a, a, a large outcry against the practice and people argued that it was re-traumatizing victims and that, that this was not something that was worth doing to secure a conviction. Right. I would think commonly it would be used in situations where someone's afraid for their safety if they're going to testify against the perpetrator, the alleged perpetrator. Yeah. And I think that, that there's some, I think that that it can be what it's used for. I think maybe people don't want to cooperate um, when they're testifying against uh, um, someone they, they are associated with. Um, or who may be, have had some degree of involvement in, in, the, in, the, in the crime that took place. Um, I think that's what, what prosecutors would often argue is, is the, the, the purpose of getting a material witness warrant. But, but I think there's real concern that they can be overused and, and misused and, and end up putting people in, in jail unnecessarily. How prevalent is the practice, do you know? Well, I think it is relatively common. We found just in, in our review, um, Kiva Landrum, who was a district attorney candidate, had issued 15, or I believe 14 of them um, in a matter of years. So I don't think that, I don't think that it's every case, but I think, I think that they aren't totally uncommon. 
And so now all the DA candidates are trying to distance distance themselves from these policies and they're all saying we never do it or haven't done it. What what have you found about what they're saying and how that squares? I guess it should be it should be noted that that all the candidates have sat on the criminal district court bench at some point, but some of them for far longer than others. So Arthur Hunter has been a judge, was a judge for 24 years, I believe. Uh, Kiva Landrum for over a decade, but the other candidates, Jason Williams served as as just he was an appointed judge to to fill in a vacancy for for only several months. Um, and Morris Reed was was a judge in the '90s for for about four years. So the fact is that that these people have had very different um, kind of kind of lifespans on the bench in, in in which they could have issued these warrants. That being said, they all of them except for Jason Williams have have, have issued them and have admitted to now issuing them. But we only found one instance in which uh, someone had had issued a material witness warrant for a victim and that was uh, Arthur Hunter in I believe 2016. The rest of them had issued warrants for witnesses but not that we have found yet for victims. Okay. And yeah, I'd, I'd like to add that there is um, there's something of a chance that uh, upon further review of uh, some of these cases uh, that uh, we could discover that some of these uh, some of these warrants were issued for victims, even though their status as a victim was not indicated in the records that we had ready access to, which were the warrant motions and the court minutes. We have, you know, with, with uh, res- COVID restrictions being what they are, um, there's, a, there's a, 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 a bit of a delay that didn't used to exist in, in getting full court files, but um, we continue to look into these, uh, to the files connected to these cases. Okay. And there's some conflation happening with some of these practices and the one of the more controversial practices that you uncovered charles a couple of years ago of issuing fake subpoenas how is that bearing out this this confusion between the two well i think it's just i mean i think it's just a natural confusion for a couple of reasons um first of all the the material witness warrants and the the uh you know the, the the sort of alleged misuse of them, um, particularly in cases that involve domestic violence or uh, sex crimes, sort of became a major news item almost at the exact same time that the fake subpoena story became a major news item within a few weeks of each other. So these these kind of just these two things kind of got conflated just by history, just because they were they were adjacent in time. Um, and on top of that, uh, there have since been several cases where we dis- where either the lens or someone else has discovered that uh, there was a fake subpoena that was connected in some way to a material witness warrant. Oh, okay. Um, that came out in uh, one case we reported on uh, the ACLU and civil the civil rights corps discovered several more similar cases. Uh, and basically how it went was when, well, when you have to, when you want to do a material witness warrant as a prosecutor, you have to, ha- you have to, you have to, uh, write up a motion for a judge to approve. And the motion has to, sh- it has to, 
uh, uh, proved two things. One is that the witness was is essential to the case, and two that uh, the witness it, it, that it's it's not going to be easy or practical to get the witness to appear in court voluntarily. So on point number two, uh, what has been discovered in a number of cases is that a prosecutor would make some semi-veiled reference to either an appointment with the DA's office or a subpoena being issued by a DA investigator. And what's been found both by us and other groups is that uh, sometimes that was coded language, meaning we sent them a fake subpoena and they didn't show up to talk to us. Mm. And what we found in reporting this story is that, you know, possibly entirely unbeknownst to Judge Landrum, there were four of these fourteen, four of these fourteen material witness warrants that did have a fake subpoena behind them somewhere. Hmm. Okay. One thing we wanted to do in this story is kind of compare these answers that, that the candidates were giving in forums to to their actual record. And one thing we found was that uh, Judge Hunter in in these forums talked about how. Um, if material witness warrants came up in front of him and specifically for victims, he would have questioned the, the uh, prosecutors um, strongly and that he likely would have denied the request. So now we know that in, in at least two cases, one of which was a victim, um, he did not deny the request. And when we, when we brought these two cases to him, um, he actually, he, he ended up telling us that he had no choice under Louisiana law but mm. to issue them. And there's some dispute about about how much discretion judges have when issuing these, but it certainly conflicts with the answers that he was giving in these forums. So I guess that that's one point that I, I wanted to make. Do you think this issue is going to have legs? I think that, that the, the candidates are all talking about a lot of similar reforms. And I think that some of the distinctions that people are gonna have to make are gonna come from from looking at, at their records. So I think that this could be one of those things that people take into account. Right, okay. Thanks, Nick. Thank you, Carolyn. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are Michael Isaac Stein, Nick Krastel, Marta Jusen, and Lens Editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Ann Muller, Chief Operating Officer at The Lens. The Lens is the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. We have a diverse set of financial supporters, including major national foundations, local foundations, and dedicated readers in the New Orleans area. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. Michael, in the in one of the judicial candidate races in civil district court in New Orleans, Jennifer Medley's campaign has now been accused by her opponent, Chris Bruno's campaign, for illegal campaign contributions. It, it all circles around this guy, Sidney Torres. Who is Sidney Torres and what's, what's going on? 
So Sidney Torres is, is a pretty well-known local entrepreneur. Um, he has been described as a flamboyant garbage mogul um, due to his well-known garbage business, IV. Yeah, his name is Sidney Torres IV, so IV is kind of his um, trademark when it comes to, to a lot of his businesses. Um, so, yeah, it's a really, it's a, it's a strange story, um, a, a pretty strange ju judicial race. So on the one side, you have the incumbent Chris Bruno. Um, and on the other side, you have, you know, the challenger, Jennifer Medley. And, and, and basically what this story is about is how Sidney Torres has taken, he's really taken it upon himself to be the primary benefactor, to work hard, to put together ads, to, to schedule ad times um, um, for the Medley campaign. And, and it all kind of goes back to this, um, this ruling. Chris Bruno is currently the judge in civil district court. And, and in 2019, um, Sidney Torres was in a legal battle with, with another developer in the city over um, ownership of, of a Frenchman Street building. And uh, Chris Bruno was the presiding judge um, and ended up ruling against Torres in that case. Um, and, and since then, um, Torres has, has been pretty vocal um, about his opposition to Bruno, not just, you know, uh, what he says, it's not just about the ruling against him, it's about how he conducts himself in court. Um, so now he's really taken it upon himself to, to drive this opposition candidate, um, which leads us to the, um, you know, it, and it's led to a, a lot of back and forth, a lot of accusations. Um, it's kind of turned pretty nasty. And so this story was kind of the latest in that saga. You say he has produced spots for her, handled media buys and loaned her $100,000. Are producing spots and handling media buys and whatnot, are those considered in-kind contributions? How do they yeah. account for those? The overall picture here is that what they're accusing is that Sidney Torres is the primary benefactor of the campaign and they've done stuff to hide that help. So early in the week, um, they didn't have any uh, anything on their expenditure reports indicating that they've actually paid SDD productions, which like you're saying would either have to be fees that they paid or an in-kind contribution. So eventually we got that same explanation out of the campaign and then the next day, they amended their last expenditure report to include the SDT production expenditures. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it would. You're right that it has to be either a in-kind contribution or listed as an expenditure when you're when you're providing that service. Yeah, that I think is uh, is the important part of this. Part of the pushback when we were, when Michael was reporting this story from the Medley campaign and Sidney Torres was, you know, look, this is, uh, we're, we're running against a, a long-time established judge who comes from a wealthy family and has, a, you know, has a family, a, a major downtown law firm in his family. He's friends with all the big law firms in town. He's connected. Um, and, you know, how else... How else is, is some upstart candidate going to try to unseat a guy like that? I mean, you know, and, and it's true. I go, I go through Chris Bruno's campaign finance reports, and yeah, they're huge. They're, they're, there's contribution after contribution from all the major law firms and, you know, all the big wealthy lawyers in town. The, the problem is I can see that. Like, I can see who is funding Chris Bruno's campaign. What has happened here is that there was a there was a loan that that by the way the Bruno campaign you know sort of has has characterized as 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 a basically unsecured loan uh, that went to Jennifer Medley and 
Jennifer Medley, you know, appears and, and, and within, within a, actually the same day that she took out that $100,000 loan, she gave $85,000 to her campaign. Her campaign has not directly admitted that the money went from one, one pocket to another, um, but, you know, it, they, haven't, they haven't denied it either. And as it appears in their report, I can't see where that money came from. I can't see Ivy Capital there. I can't see Sidney Torres there. So what what the Bruno campaign is saying is that that goes that goes against the you know the very the very essence of the campaign finance law. Why wouldn't Torres just create a pack? It's so- interesting. He has a pack. He has a pack already. If if you know if he wanted to if he wanted to do ind- independent expenditures going after Chris Bruno. He had $60,000 in his pack as of the end of the last year, according to their most recent campaign finance report. Told me he's severing ties, he's trying to sever ties with the campaign in order to use his pack to run campaign ads for Medley now. In fact, he started doing that. Um, over the last two days, he started running a, re- a rebuttal ad to the Chris Bruno campaign, which has been more vocally connecting him to this campaign. Now that it's become undeniable, that uh, Sidney Torres has been backing this campaign, both with his production company and his and his money. He has started using the voice pack, Voice of the People pack, is its full name. Over the past couple of days, he produced and released a mess or a, a commercial that was directly responding to uh, the accusations that were coming out out of the Bruno campaign that. Um, you know, namely, and this this is not this is this is not me editorializing. This is this is what the the, the Bruno campaign has, has said in ads that Sidney Torres is trying to buy himself a judge, and so Torres has put his face and his name to ads uh, rebutting that over the past few days. And, and yeah, I want to add a, a couple things. I think the first thing you asked, you know, would it be smarter to just use his money directly and and, and pour it into his pack and and. Put ads that way. I, I guess I'd say that they're, they're kind of two different types of aid. One is donations, and, and those absolutely exist. Donations, um, you know, just directly to the campaign. This is more of a cash flow issue. So I, I, I imagine that Sidney Torres is fully expecting to, to get his money back in this situation, and that the Medley campaign, you know, when you take out a, a loan like this, it's we need cash now to win the election, and then after that, we can continue to raise money. Um, through our campaign and pay back the loan that way. So it, it, it's 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 not either or. I think both forms of aid can work together, if that makes sense. Um, so he's doing both, and 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 both serve their own purposes. Both work if they're legal con if they're legal contributions, though. So, yeah. It, okay. So so I guess you have the two things here. You have the 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 legality question, which I want to get into a little bit more. But, but you also have, and I think what Bruno's campaign is getting at, you know, and what Charles was talking about, you know, the, the technical legality of, of whether this loan was proper, um, I, I don't think that you can say for sure one way or the other. I, I think that the overall message here is that not only is, you know, it, the allegation is that not only is Sidney Torres trying to buy himself a judge, but they're trying to minimize his, his you know, they're trying to minimize how much, you know, it, it looks like he's been helping the campaign, if that makes sense. So when we get to the legality question here, so basically there are contribution limits and, and loans when it comes to those limits are often, you know, seen in the same way as contributions are. Um, a, a candidate can loan their own campaign an unlimited amount of money. 
so a, a, a state bank or um, another you know federally accredited lending institution can also lend a campaign on an unlimited amount of money, but other people and other institutions cannot. When I earlier said that this was an un or that the Bruno campaign was alleging that this was essentially an unsecured loan, um, what they are saying is that the 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 collateral she she used for the loan was not not her own own home, not the house that she lives in, but an investment property that she owns in Mid City. The assessed value of that property is two hundred and four thousand dollars, uh, and there there is at least that we know of one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in debt on that property. So the difference there is fifty thousand um, uh, dollars on a on a one hundred thousand dollar loan. Yeah. What Sidney Torres is saying when we brought this to his attention is that I think the, is he's saying, well, I believe that the assessor undervalued that property. I think that property as is is worth at least $300,000, and I have a private appraisal to prove it. Michael and I, of course, haven't seen that private appraisal. I'm not saying that it's not true. It, it seems entirely plausible. And that if I were to convert this house from a double, which it is now, into a single, I could get five hundred thousand dollars for this house. So to call so to Torres, Torres's argument is that to call this an unsecured loan is ridiculous. It's a good investment. I talked to the state ethics administrator Kathleen Allen, and, and basically what she was saying is that if I take a loan out from a bank and I have all this debt and I took a mortgage out and then I start running for office, that that money is my money, and I should be able to donate that to my campaign or lend that to my campaign in my own name. So as a principle, she said that's fine, but she said that there's two scenarios. Um, she listed two scenarios where you're starting to get into um, legally murky waters. And so one of them, to what Charles is speaking to, is could you have gotten a similar loan from another bank, right? If this, if if the lender wasn't Sidney Torres, an outspoken contributor and supporter of your campaign, would you have gotten a similar deal from another bank with a similar interest rate? and all of that. Would they have looked at the collateral on that home, the debt on that home, and made the same decision? Right. If he was giving preferential treatment, you're getting into murky waters. Um, the, the second situation is that it can't be a wink and nod pass-through. So, you know, this can't be a, a, you know, they couldn't meet in a back room and say, hey, we can't lend you an unlimited amount directly, but here's this roundabout way. So this has to be a, a loan that was given in the normal course of Sidney Torres's business that was not done to circumvent laws. So, so why we're speaking, why, why the, the issue of the, the collateral on the house is important is that the Bruno campaign is claiming that another institution would have never given a loan like this. Sidney Torres is saying, well, I think it's a good investment and part of my business model is um, you know, investing in homes and eventually foreclosing on them. And so I, I don't have any concerns with this investment. And really, the, the bottom line of it all is it's going to be litigated in the court of public opinion on election day only, right? There's no threat of any other further action or litigation or anything else? No, not that we're aware of right now. Um, we do know that um, the Bruno campaign has told us they had a report prepared by Gray Sexton, who was for several decades the uh, lead attorney for the state ethics board. Um, he, he is the one who, who contends in his report, uh, which, you know, which, which, which of course was commissioned by uh, Joseph, Joseph Bruno, Christopher's brother, who's part of the campaign, 
Mr. Sexton contends that uh, these are campaign finance violations, and as a result, campaign tells us that it has sent copies of this report to both the U.S. Attorney's Office and the State Attorney General's Office. Now, neither of those entities um, has or, or frankly would confirm receiving those report reports um, because you know they both have uh, policies that they won't confirm or deny the existence of an investigation. Okay, thanks, Michael. <laughs> Thank you, Kellen. Okay, Marta, the five-year federal order on special education could be coming to an end soon, but not before the district and state work out more proactive ways to monitor areas of special education in New Orleans. Last week, a federal judge ordered the state education department and NOLA public schools to discuss proactive special education monitoring rather than what they have described as reactive enforcement with the Southern Poverty Law Center who sued about 10 years ago before the agencies attempted to exit their monitoring agreement. Meanwhile, after six months of not posting serious warnings about charter schools, the district uploaded two that were issued in September after the lens inquired. Both concerned special education issues that have been monitored under the consent decree. Marta, remind us where the landmark lawsuit started and how this settlement is nearing its end. Yeah, so the, the suit was filed in 2010 by the Southern Poverty Law Center on behalf of a group of families um, who felt that their students with special education needs were being discriminated against and in charter schools specifically. And that could either have been in just in terms of enrollment or like literal physical access to the building, you know, a, a building without a wheelchair ramp. Okay. And so the, the court's advising that they need more proactive monitoring instead of reactive. What are the examples of that? Yeah. So I, I think what's really interesting here is that you, you would kind of think what is happening is proactive monitoring, but it, it really isn't because they look for problems that have happened in the past. And I, I don't think we exactly know what they mean by proactive, but it definitely sounds like it would be better for everyone in terms of maybe we can look at this data and actually get into a school in the middle of the school year and you know be saying like, hey, look, your suspensions are pretty high for kids with disabilities and it's only October, you know, why is that? Rather than what they've done in the past is they've looked at that data at the end of a school year and then gone into the school the next year. So what are the recent findings at New Orleans schools? Yeah, so at um, Cohen High School, they had an issue with a program that is called Child Find. And Child Find is a, described in federal law, it, it is essentially that schools have to be proactive in looking for students who may have disabilities and identifying those disabilities and then making sure that they're serving the students properly. Um, so I'm waiting to hear back from their CEO, but I, I know that that had been a problem there in the past. And so what had happened this year is the state has elevated that finding to um, what they're now giving them is called an intensive corrective action plan. And that's that ICAP? Yeah, it's what they call an ICAP. So essentially what they're gonna have to do is a much better screening process for students and anyone that they think might have a disability or anytime a, you know, a parent asks for a, a review, they need to be doing that right away. And any timeline on this agreement and what it might look like? I don't know at the moment. Um, these these things tend to go pretty slow. So, you know, it probably could be a while yet, but um, it is it is certainly interesting to see this kind of movement. Um, and basically what this came out of was just a, a small conference 
where SPLC suggested that they come up with this way to exit the agreement. And the judge liked it so much, he made it an order. In your story, I read that you found that it was all like nothing to see here, everything's cool, until the lens and your reporting, there actually had been two instances of things that then they said, oh yeah, we, we actually do have some problems that we need to post about. Yeah, and so the, the district had mentioned them in their September meeting, but something that they started last year, it's kind of in, res- I, I asked them to do this a couple years ago, because I didn't understand why, if you have these serious problems at schools, why aren't you putting it somewhere where parents can find them? Right. Because parents aren't going to see a letter that you send to a charter school CEO. Right. So then the district started posting warnings, the most serious warnings that it gives out on its website. And then, you know, I checked that occasionally and had noticed that they hadn't put anything up there in six months. And that seemed like a pretty long time for every school to be perfect. So... Um, they, they kind of chalked it up to a, you know, clerical error, basically. Um, and they said that they had, you know, discussed it at their September meeting so that they had been transparent about it. But when I first asked about it, they, they said, Oh, we'll get them up by the end of the month. And it was like, it's, it's two pieces of paper. You can, (laughs) you can upload them quicker than that. There's, there's all, there's all sorts of things like this that, you know, my mind seemed to have nothing to do with the COVID problem that 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 seemed to have dropped off by local government entities, uh, you know, during during the pandemic. Uh, you know, a, a lot of transparency issues, including uh, in, including you know public records requests, uh, the proper you know the proper posting of, of agendas and minutes, uh, and now this with with the uh, with OPSB. So you know, it's 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 a pattern that we have seen over the past seven. So we, we had asked about this. They said that there were um, some issues that had not been posted, but that they had you know been p- telling people at public meetings. And then they said these would be up at the end of the month. And the next day they came out and said, we're proud of our team for finding ways to continually improve postings on our website. Well, thanks for the reporting. Great job. Thank you. Well, that'll do it for this week, you guys. Thank you so much for all your work. Thank you, everyone. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week Michael Isaac Stein, Nick Krastel, Marta Jusen, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>